Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. Today, we have a great guest with us, Eileen Scully. She is an international keynote speaker and author of In the Company of Men, How Women Can Succeed in a World Built Without Them. She is founder and CEO of The Rising Tides, a consulting firm she launched in 2015 that makes workplaces better for women through assessment and advisory services. She is a SheSource expert with the Women's Media Center and has been interviewed by WNYC, Forbes, the Boston Globe, Standards and Poor's, Global Market Intelligence, Thrive Global, Psychology Today, and Inc. Eileen was named a Belfast Homecoming Ambassador in October of 2020. In December of 2018, Eileen was named to Irish America Magazine's 2018 Business 100 list which was the second consecutive year she received this prestigious and deeply meaningful honor. In June of 2016, within the first year of founding the Rising Tides, Eileen was invited by the Obama White House to participate in the United States of Women, one of 5,000 global advocates for women and girls. In September of 2018, she delivered her first TED Talk, How Women Can Succeed in a World Built Without Them, at the TEDx conference in Sfax, Tunisia. And in August of 2018, just a month prior, Eileen spoke at the first Women in Engineering Conference sponsored by the Global Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, also in Tunisia. She keynoted the October 2019 Women's Leadership Conference at the University of New Haven. And in August of 2020, she keynoted the Gold Award Ceremony for the Connecticut Girl Scouts. In November of 2018, the Rising Tides launched the Leadership Diversity Index, the first comprehensive measurement of the representation of women and people of color on corporate boards of directors and executive leadership teams. Eileen studied at Hofstra University and Cornell University. And for our listeners, you just heard a glowing bio from somebody and are probably wondering, well, where's the Be Brave part? Well, Eileen started her career by making a conscious decision to drop out of college at age 18 when she became pregnant with her daughter. Welcome, Eileen. We are so excited to have you with us. Thank you so much. And hearing you read off that bio explains why I'm so freaking tired. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a robust bio. I am so excited to have you here with us, Eileen. And I read your book, but before we get started, I want to read to you a quote that we read to all of our guests here on the Be Brave podcast. And it goes like this. One day you will tell your story of how you've overcome what you're going through now, and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. And I think that sums up your entire career from age 18 on. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. 
So Kara and I, before we got online with you, we were preparing for this. And Kara said to me, she said, you know, I asked Eileen, like, was there any shame in all of this? And 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 really, Eileen said there, no, there kind of wasn't any shame in all of this. And I thought to myself, gosh, 18 years old, dropping out of college because you're pregnant, all your focus probably was, was I need to survive. I need to get out there and take care of me and take care of my baby and figure out a way to do it. And I'm imagining that you had blinders on and you just plug, you know, plugged yourself in and, and kind of mustered up the strength to get yourself through everything. And then maybe later on in your career, you looked back and you said, what the heck was going on? I need to do something about all of this. So I, I was really impressed by your book in the company of men. Seeing what that book revealed to me really kind of made me think that maybe that was part of the, the story. And, and maybe you can expand on that from us. Your, your leap from 18 years old of dropping out of college to making such a huge impact on the women's workforce. Oh, that's, that's very kind. I think when you know the, the distance gives us the objectivity of our circumstances, but you know, growing up in a very Catholic, very traditional, not just family, but extended family and community, there absolutely was shame in admitting that I found myself pregnant, right? And, you know, not to quantify any of the decisions that I made, but understanding that I was in this situation and who did I want to be now, right? Knowing that this moment was going to be an inflection point for the rest of my life. And who was I going to look at in the mirror every day? And could I live with that person? And that's where the decision to parent this child came into play for me, right? I'm incredibly blessed that my parents recognized how difficult this was going to be and opened their home and their hearts and supported us for the first couple of years. We stayed with them. And my daughter, who's now in her 30s, has an incredible bond with both of my parents. But there was you know, a, a stigma and a shame that stayed with me for years. And again, you think about inflection points. I dropped out of college. I tried really hard over the years to go back and finish and do the adult programs, the accelerated programs. And I would go in fits and starts. And then my travel schedule with work wouldn't support it. Or I had my own daughter's tuition to pay when she went to high school and college. And I just never finished. Anytime I was applying for a job, that would be a question I would ask. Why don't you have your degree? And I would be really vague and say, well, I had some family situations that I had to deal with. And I've been trying to go back, but I've never been able to complete it. And a friend of mine at the time, who a very successful recruiter, very good friend of mine, said, you know what you're doing, Eileen? You're letting those people, strangers, fill in your narrative. So they're deciding what you did and what you chose based on what you're not saying. He goes, why don't you just step into it and own it? Say, I got pregnant and I dropped out of college to raise this kid. And then at least they're deciding whether they want to work with you based on the truth and the facts and not what they're deciding you didn't say. And that for me was so critical in jettisoning that shame and saying, you know what? 
what is it that I'm shamed by? So I had sex. Who didn't? Like, honestly, <laughs> right? Yes. Like, I think of my my father's mother, who was a, a woman ahead of her time. She was, you know, she, she was in her late 30s when she had my father in 1940, right? And that was, uh, right, that was out of the norm. Yeah, that was unheard of. Completely. And she just had other things she wanted to do. So she called me up when she found out that I was pregnant invites me over. Her thing was, let's have a cup of tea. And I was like, oh, this is the sit down, right? <laughs> and she looks at me and she goes, she called every every woman in the family. She called your sister. And she said, sister, I just always thought you were too smart to get caught. <laughs> right? <laughs> so how do I take, oh, you know, <laughs> well, and, and it took me years to really process and understand what she actually said when mm. she said that to me. But she was right. I mean, I really, on, on some level, I was too smart to get caught, but I was trying to get myself on contraception. And that was a whole other barrier set in the late 80s. But yeah, so so the the shame that I felt for probably the first 15 years of my career was heavy. And it was two-pronged because it was single mother and college dropout, right? So when my daughter graduated from university in 2010, I looked at her and I said, you weren't supposed to do this. According to all the experts, when I gave birth to you, you were supposed to drop out of high school. You were supposed to get pregnant. You were supposed to have a drug problem. You were supposed to be a criminal. This is not what the experts told me you were supposed to do. And I was never more proud of my entire life. Never more proud of my entire life to sit and watch her march on that stage and get that diploma. I'm I'm being honest because it wasn't supposed to happen. And and everybody took bets. I shouldn't say everybody took bets, but nobody would have taken the bet on this kid at that time if you knew me at 19, right? That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I got teared up there. That was, that's awesome. I know she must be just your, your heart. She is your heart. Completely. Yeah, completely. I love that that realization, that moment of someone telling you to own your story. It was a guy. Yep. It was a, a male who said, own your story. And there is a, uh, a male who does the forward in your book. Yeah. So, you know, we're, this podcast is all about uh, women, but there are lots of men who are great champions for women. And I don't want to overlook that. And I think that's awesome. I love that own your story. And I, I was not, I didn't think I could. I didn't think I could say that out loud and have somebody respect me more for saying that out loud. And he just flipped the script for me. And he was like, okay, then then they're filling in the blanks. You want them not hiring you or not working with you because of something that you didn't do? Mm-hmm. And he was a thousand percent correct. Yeah, those are called like false narratives, right? When somebody doesn't have all the information, they make up their own narration and it's false. It's inaccurate. It's not but that's what we do as humans and it's natural. So great job owning your story. Where did that owning your story lead you to? You know, I, I think it led me to stepping into more of my own power and accomplishments. So at this point, this we're probably talking, this was 15, 20 years ago where my career was shifting. I had enough accomplishments in my career that the discussion around the not having my degree was lessened in impact, right? And I could say, well, look, look at all these things that I did at these, you know, billion dollar companies and the successes that I've had. But I started leading with that in a different way, right? I was always, and it sounds anyone that knows me, like this is so antithetical to who I am, but 
I was really always grateful that somebody hired me. I always felt really grateful that I was given an opportunity because I told myself I didn't deserve it, right? I was out of my league. Right. So when I first had my daughter, I went to nursing school for two years and that was a massive failure, right? I just am not the right person to be. You would not want me to be your nurse. Let's just put it that way, right? (laughs) And I tried because I told myself it was a short runway to a flexible, well-paying career that was never going to get outsourced or never go offshore, right? I just couldn't do it. And then I was like, oh my God, now what am I going to do, right? So I started dabbing into corporate. And the first company that I worked for, the woman who hired me, she and I just hit it off in the interview. She's like, you got the job. The company was a family run company that I now can see in retrospect was so wildly dysfunctional and running, uh, run by this wildly controlling guy who like wouldn't let women wear pants in the office. That's like the perfect illustration of how banana town it was. But I was like so grateful to have this job and to be making money and to keep my hands clean every day and to go home at five o'clock every day. I left there and went to a company where I worked for a woman who, and I write about this in the book, she was really accomplished. She still is two master's degrees. You know, she was probably 10, 15 years older than me. This woman pushed me out of the nest and she was like, you can do this and I will support you. And that's the thing that I've always held on to is for a woman to strongly mentor and sponsor a younger, less experienced woman, but to bring them into situations that they wouldn't dare go into themselves, right? So she started giving me confidence in my intelligence and in my ability to figure stuff out. And that sort of set me on, you know, this ridiculous path of just wonderful career growth and relationship and experiences that I'm I'm grateful for, but I also am not afraid to say that I earned because I worked my ass off for years. So sorry, bleep that. No, no, no. You can swear <laughs> you can on this swear podcast. <laughs> We're not PG 13. I love it. No. Nope. Oh, I love that. And I want to, I'm going to the back of the book now where you you talk about building a world. And we will talk more about the book, but you talk about mentoring and sponsoring and I guess for mentoring, learning tends to go in one direction. And I, I this never really occurred to me. I never really thought about the sponsor, but the sponsor, let's see, sponsor requires advocacy and identifying opportunities. So you discover and share. So when you say she pushed you out of the nest, it's like, okay, go. Like, and this is your learning opportunity. But I think you, and you may fail and that's okay. You may stumble, but go give it a shot. One of the things that I talk with my clients about every time that when I'm working with them now is we need to create cultures where people have the courage to challenge things and the freedom to fail. So knowing that I can innovate or experiment and it's not going to jeopardize my job is a very different feeling than I got to play it safe and I can't open my mouth because I'm going to be put on the wrong list, right? And I'm going to lose my job. If we can foster more of that in our corporate lives, I think that we'll see, and and this goes into a lot of some of the diversity and equity work that I do, which is there are people who are so terrified to speak up because they're the first or the only person that looks or prays or loves like them in a room, they're already feeling exposed, right? And we need to create this system where it's not putative for challenging something right? It's work. It's not, I'm not telling you you're an idiot. I'm saying maybe there's a better way we can look at this. Maybe I come from a different lens 
that might change what we're doing in a way that might resonate better with our customers, or we might open a new market. But the the corporation needs to have a culture that supports that, right? And this woman gave me the freedom to fail, right? And it's so fascinating that you talk about that because I think Karen and I have interviewed many women and, and have talked ourselves about how we're kind of brought up as little girls to be quiet and be a good girl and do the right thing and don't speak up. And we, you know, perfectionism is such a big part of what we think we're supposed to be. And so it doesn't allow you to think that you can fail and be all right. That's not in the vocabulary that you can, you know, you have to get good grades. You can't, if you're not good at something, don't try it. You know, it's so fascinating, but you're right. In a, in any kind of a company relationship, anything that's trying to get ahead, you got to try things and fail and try things and fail. Right. And that's how you succeed. But it's such a foreign thing to us. It is. And, and at the same time, we observe and experience a lot of men that fail up, right? Oh, here, go run this business unit. <laughs> oh, we're going to close that business unit, but you're getting promoted to this. Like, what? Like, and we all know behind the scenes why that business unit failed. But, you know, there, it's again, it's a cultural thing, right? And we need to break that down. I want to read a quote from your book around that. It says, we fear that our inadequacies will become known that we truly don't deserve to be where we are, that we haven't worked hard enough or done the research or paid the same dues or that everyone else knows something we don't. And we know that's imposter syndrome. Yeah. But I really think that women are almost like taught that. We're taught to have imposter syndrome. Well, and I think we're taught to be grateful back to my earlier point, right? Like, you know, what's when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was at Columbia Law School and one of the deans was like, why are you taking the space that a man should have? Right. But that that was in the 50s. We're still kind of people don't say it that way, but you know it. You know, when somebody thinks that you're the diversity hire or somebody thinks that, you know, you're the affirmative action hire here. Like, let's let's talk about the, the Supreme Court nominee right now. Right. Who's calling for her qualifications and her LSAT scores from 30 years ago? <laughs> right. Yeah, like, that's a little ridiculous. And are we doing that for everyone who's brought not only into the Supreme Court, but who gets a microphone on a cable news show? Are we asking for what everyone's qualifications are? I tell people, you want you want someone qualified. You want somebody to run your budget to the penny. You put a single mother in charge of that because I'm telling you, we can squeeze five bucks out of every dollar. <laughs> And that's not going to show up on my CV, but I tell you, there's no more, there's no one better at creative accounting than a single mother. That is so fascinating. I believe you. I do too. I do too. And resourceful. And I'm still doing it. Even though I'm not paying her bills anymore, there's no tuition. I'm still like managing to every last time. (laughs) Eileen, there are some other fans, like there are so many fascinating things in your book that made me go, holy shit. I can't, I can't believe, I mean, I was born in 1966 and these things were happening Oh yeah. during, these have happened during my lifetime. Like yeah. until 1978, pregnancy was a valid reason a woman could be fired from her job in the United States. What? Legally. Right. It was legally defensible. Yeah. I mean, and then you couldn't get a, a loan at a bank unless you had a man co-sign for you. Like, and that's still, I, yep. Or a credit card. Yeah. I have been to the bank to try and get loans for my company. I'm a woman in a, a little bit of a man's business. And they pretty much will say to me, 
well, is, where, where's your husband? Where's your, what's your husband doing? I'm like, yeah, he's, he's not here because he's not part of this. Like, and you give up. You give up and you say, I'll figure it out a different way. I don't need you. Right. But it's so fascinating. These quotes that you have or these statistics that you have in your book make my jaw drop because some of these things are still going on. What is the biggest fight right now in 2022 that you see for women? Whew. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like there's more than one. Um, you know, in corporate, you mean like in yeah, in your world, the world of business. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's always going to be pay transparency, right? So we've just now got, I think it's up to 11 states. It's illegal to ask about previous salary history in an interview. That question penalizes women and particularly women of color so much more than it penalizes men, right? So when we stop asking, how badly did your previous employer pay you? And we start hiring people based on what we budgeted for that job and what their qualifications are and the value that they bring to our organization. That's a massive change. So going from not asking about previous salary history to opening up salary ranges in any company so people can understand what are those bands? Where am I relative to my peers? And what can I do to keep improving what I'm doing to get to that next level is huge. I mean, how many people, right? Lily Ledbetter was doing the exact same job, exact same job on the line at Goodyear and found out much later that she was severely underpaid. And the thing in in the book that I point out is she's never gotten restitution from Goodyear. Mm. So her name is on the Fair Pay Act and she still has never been made whole, which is, it it makes me sideways. Yeah. Yeah. I get, yeah. I'm with you on that. That's just, it's fascinating to know that that, like you wonder who's sleeping well at night over that decision. The shareholders. Yes. Shareholder value. I mean, and, and it's justifiable at the top line because they're improving shareholder value, right? Because it's a it's a lower expense. So there's a, a film that's coming out that I actually was sort of on an advisory level for about Lily Ledbetter's life. That's going to be coming out in probably two, two and a half, three years. And Patricia Clarkson is going to play her, which I think is an amazing, amazing casting decision. So very cool stuff. Oh, I look forward to that. Yeah, very cool stuff. I have a question for you about a quote in your book that's a little bit a little bit different. It goes back to you personally, but there's a paragraph that says, that moment changed everything for me. It proved that no matter how hard you worked, how well you did your job, there were some men who would never see past your sex and past their own sexualization of you. Can you talk about that moment? Yeah, so... It was a, a specific event where I had skipped out in the middle of the workday and got into a car accident. Not my own fault, not that that matters, but my car had to be towed away. And the police officer was kind enough to drop me back at my office. As some of you may know, I didn't know until I was in this vehicle, you cannot open the back door of a police car yourself, right? It's obvious why, but yeah. he had to park in front of the building, get out, open the door and let me out. I thanked him. It was great. I walked in the building and, you know, I was a little shaken up. I hadn't gotten hurt or anything. And there was a conference room. We were in an open environment, right? Where everybody was in cubes in the center of the floor, but there were conference rooms around the perimeter. 
And in one of the conference rooms was a bunch of the male managers and the door was open and one of them yelled out, what did they get you for? Prostitution? Mm. And this is in the middle of the workday. Wow. And again, this was at one of those points in my life. I was probably 30, 31. And I, I just completely shrunk. Now, not that I wasn't already having a bad day. Right. right. And then right. as I say in the book, if he had said shoplifting, if he had said stealing shoes or purses, it would have been funny. I wouldn't have remembered it. But the fact that he went there was so insulting. And then that nobody else in the room did anything or said anything. Mm. Right. So all my coworkers are out there. Everybody's, you know, working at their desk. Everybody hears this. And I'm like, can I just crawl under a rock and go home or quit? Right. So when I I published that story the first time in one of my newsletters and it went wildly viral. I don't know if you all remember a woman worked for Uber and she exposed their sexual harassment culture uh, on her management level. So I took her story and I told my own story. And, you know, a lot of people that I worked with for years follow me on all the different social media feeds. I got such interesting responses to that because a lot of the men, I shouldn't say a lot. I think there were probably a half a dozen men that I used to work with that reached out to me and said, I'm so sorry. Was that me? Really? (laughs) They didn't even know because they said it so often. Isn't it that you nailed it? That's exactly what I took away from it. And I was like, I'm not telling anybody who actually said this, but the fact that there are multiple guesses as to who it could have been or guys that were like, I don't know. Was it me? Right. Was I the asshole? Yeah. And and wow. to reflect on that is even more powerful. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That they don't think twice about making comments like that. Cause they just don't, they don't feel that they're hilarious and they all tell each other that they're hilarious. Right. Yeah. And then they tell me I lost my sense of humor. Cause I don't think it's funny. And I'm like, right. You're not funny. It's your problem, Eileen. It's your problem. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Why do you have to be so uptight? I ruin everything, right? (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. That's terrible. The last podcast guest we had was talking about how really men just think we all want them. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, they just think, you know, it's, they're wired that way. Like she wants, right. You know, she called it sexual over perception, I believe. Yeah. (laughs) But that's the lens through which they see all of us, right? Right. Like I had a guy, this didn't go into the book, but I had there, I worked for a guy who was maybe 10 years younger than me at one point in my career. He made a comment to my coworkers, not to me, because one of us wouldn't have survived. (laughs) He made a comment to my coworkers about how attractive he thought my daughter was. And I'm like, okay, there's a boundary. Like, wow. Yeah. Like, first of all, creepy. Second of all, creepy. Third of all, what? Like, <laughs> are, are you kidding me? Wow. Do you not know? And she was like in college, like, and he was in his thirties, like creepy. Yeah. Creepy. Yeah. I didn't work for him for very long, but yeah. But again, that's, it's this idea that, and I, when I started this business, I, and the whole, you know, Weinstein, me too, Matt Lauer stuff came out. I had a lot of really well-meaning, well-intentioned male executives come to me on the sly and say, can you give me a document with the guardrails for what I can and cannot say right now? And I'm like, you got to ask me to like do that for you. Really? Like you really don't have a sense of what is acceptable banter in the office. And I said to him, like, if you wouldn't say it with 
your daughter in the front of you, or if you wouldn't say it with your grandmother in front of you, don't say it. Bingo, okay, right? but, hold, but hold up there, Eileen. I come from a family who would say that shit right in front of their daughter, their mother, their grandmother. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I think that it's, I think it's more acceptable. And I think that's sometimes the lens that us women, that's why we're almost numb to it. You know, it's, it is an acceptable practice. We are kind of uh, objectified in a way. Right. Well, and we're minimized too. Right. And that's part of it. Right. Where we don't take up the same space as a man in a room. Right. Right. Depending on your background or where you come from, it sounded like you came from a very Catholic family, you know? Oh yeah. Um, Oh yeah. And so there's a certain role that a a woman, a wife, a a mother, a daughter kind of has in the family unit. And so I think I will say though, my father was raised by the woman who told me I was too smart to get caught. (laughs) So my father was raised around women and my parents, that was never part of my upbringing. I observed it outside of our home, but my parents are still partners. Like they don't play that at all. And it's great. And my brother with his wife doesn't do it. Like I, I have to say my family's really for our generation was an anomaly because my dad cooked on the weekends and, you know, picked us up from school and was very, very present and involved. And my brother was never dismissive of me because of my gender. He was dismissive of me because I was annoying and all those other (laughs) things, but it was not because of my gender. Right. Does it, so part of me, as we're talking, a part of me feels like some of these lessons have to happen in the family unit first. Some of these lessons have to happen in the school systems first. Like you, yeah. you said, you cited in your book that, you know, the schools are still policing what girls wear to school and not boys. Yeah. So some of these lessons are coming, they're deep rooted. They're deep rooted in survival. They're deep rooted in our primitive brain. They're like, we haven't caught up to the, modernization of the workplace and modernization of home life where there aren't gender roles because for centuries there's been gender roles and that was survival until you know you know the war broke out and uh, we had rivet rosie the riveter um and then they sent them all home right so when the war broke out kaiser sent who was making parts for the aircrafts whatever kaiser set up 24 7 daycares where they would feed the kids, they would educate the kids. They, I mean, they would take them to school and back. They would send the mothers home with a pre-cooked meal for dinner. And then the war ended, the men came back, the women went back home and the daycare centers closed. Yeah, you did your job. You helped us through the crisis. We needed you for that. And you would show up for us women. You always show up, you always help out. You're you're grateful and empathetic and uh, right here on my desk. I love it. Oh, for the for right next to Gloria Steinem, my other hero. So I've got Rosie the Riveter and Gloria Steinem looking at me every day. Awesome, yeah. But you're right, and I think that we generationally we're getting better, right? I look at my daughter's generation, and I see that they don't care who you love. They don't care what religion you subscribe to. They they're so not religious at all, and I think that levels things out. So you have less of that innate tribalism, right? They don't care who somebody's sleeping with or attracted to or how they choose to present to the world. It's not important to them, right? And I'm not trying to take, and I love that. And I think you're hundred percent right that this newer generation, you know, they're stay-at-home dads and 
It's awesome. I love that. It's just a partnership, like you were saying. But I think sometimes, and I'm with you, like I'm 100% in your tribe. And I and I feel all of these things that I've read in your book. And I also think that there's some, you know, by the time people get into the workforce, they've had 20 years of programming, 25 years of programming. And so now they're in the workplace and somebody's got to figure out how to unprogram these beliefs that they have around gender roles and 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 what the workplace is supposed to be and what was acceptable for all these years. So I feel like what a big, massive undertaking it is to try and get someone at that point in their life and reprogram it. So have you thought about trying to figure out how to get to the parents and how to get to the school systems? and how to get to the organizations that kind of create that culture to begin with, to create the change in the workplace. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's clearly none of us are only people that go to work, right? So when we go to work, we also go home. And a lot of the experiences that we have at work permeate our lives at home and vice versa. So I think about what you're saying frequently, my ability to make an impact at that level is limited First of all, because they're not organized or profitable enough to pay me, right? And second of all, the impact on the workplace is really where my focus is and needs to be right now, because that's, I think, where we can materially change women's lives, right? But when you brought up before that I had a man write the forward to my book, he's such a generous, evolved man. And his relationship with his wife is so strong and such a great partnership. He has a daughter who is brilliant and going to take over the world someday. He gets it. And he just stepped down from his role at Verizon and a woman took over. So now Verizon has women running their consumer business and their business business, their B2B business. Tammy at the B2B business has always, or not, has always been there, but it's been there for a while. And now there's a woman that took over for Ronan. So he's comfortable being around people that are not like him, but that's a really, he's a unicorn in that way. And that's why I wanted to highlight him because he's such a shining example of what's possible. And you don't really even have to try that hard. You just have to flip a few switches in your brain and give people opportunities outside of what maybe is your comfort zone, right? Yeah. You know, during this discussion, I I, I keep thinking about the language that we use. I had family in town last weekend and my cousin, a couple of times when he was referring to us, the ladies, he'd be like, Oh, you know, the girls, the girls and my mother would be like women. And he'd be like, what, what did I say? Oh, did I say girls? Like he doesn't realize he's And so once in a while I have that happen here, Alan will be on a conference call and he might be paying, he might be talking to some guys and he'll be like, Oh, the girls in this area, they're doing yeah. really well. He's paying it. And I'll yell women. <laughs> And I just don't, it's not, it's not intentional, right? but I think it's just, sometimes it's the language and there aren't, not everybody is going to say, Hey, women or ladies, or you yell out a different, no, 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 it's not girls. But you say it's not intentional, Kara, you say it's not intentional and it's not, but changing it can be very intentional. So you know, at a certain point, like I, I joke with people that it might take, you might have to hit me on the head three times for something to finally stick, but we learn how to talk about people. We learn how to, because someone can remind us, or when you see that discussed, right. Or you listen to that being discussed, you hear it three times at a certain point, you're intentionally choosing 
not to change your lexicon, right? And and you have to take responsibility for that. We have this conversation a lot about how people refer to people of other races, right? There are ways. So we said earlier the tribes. I don't I don't say you're in my tribe because that's not that's not who I am. That's not where I want to use that word. I talk about tribalism, but I don't say you know girl tribe because that's not my culture and I'm appropriating and misusing the real use of that word. Those kinds of things we need to step away from. Mm, so interesting. Cause you know, Patty and I will use the word tribe all the time. You're in my tribe, meaning you are like, you know, a kindred spirit. And it sounds like that's not the appropriate use of the word or it's just not. Yeah. There are better ways to, to say that. Right. So, and it's, it's when we start thinking about these things more consciously and we understand from people in the Native American community why that's a, a little offensive to them, then we can make the change. But if you're not made aware of it, you know, you can't be expected to find all these things yourself. And it's constantly changing, right? We're moving, like, we're moving away from people of color to Black with a capital B, right? Or from African American to Black, because not everyone who's Black is American. Right. Right. And or not from Africa. What about Jamaicans or Haitians? They're not African. Yeah. Um, The other thing I'm hearing a little bit more, I'm hearing. So all these changes, it is hard for a lot of people. Of course. And and they're getting frustrated. And I'm hearing more and more about, well, now when you have to put your sex, there's male, female or other. There is no other. What is this other? You were either born this way or you were born that way. and And I'm like, why? Are you angry about that? All you have to do is click the one that applies to you. You don't have to worry about anything else. Why does that make you so angry? Right. And it's a lightning rod because we're having these discussions around including people, right? And not everybody's on board with being that inclusive. Right. Right. Not everybody wants people to have full expression and agency over their gender identity, over their decision to of who they love right people want to be able to say i'm comfortable with this world view therefore all of you need to step in line with what makes me comfortable and and i think we're in this crucible right now of who deserves or earns comfort from the rest of us right when we talk about what we want to teach in schools about american history when we talk about how we want to allow people to express their genders it's has no material impact on me. If somebody is transgendered, I, it, it has no impact on me. And if they're living a fuller life, and if I can support them in that expression, that enriches me. And, and that opens my aperture on everybody I come in contact with, right? It'll be really interesting. I am of the belief, and I, this might be a little controversial, but I'm of the belief that the smallest minority group is the individual itself. That is the absolute smallest minority is every individual. And when we're not asking, are you male? Are you female? How do you identify your gender? What's your religion? What's your race? When those questions aren't even on there, then we've come a long way. Right. Because all that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. And eventually you'll find out. But I think sometimes, and like I said, this might be controversial, but I think sometimes we create our own separation by, by trying to be inclusive. Well, just be inclusive. Don't call it just, you know, we, we have this wiring, this primitive thing in our brain. It just is fascinating to me that I, it feels like as hard as the fight for inclusion is, 
it tends to separate us more. You know, you've got all these groups. Well, how are we supposed to be inclusive if we have all these groups? Right. So, well, and I think that, that, that my response to that, Patty, would be we have a need for these groups because we're not fully welcomed into the larger population, right? So if we look at the makeup of the Supreme Court, the people who are deciding how the law manifests in our daily lives in this country, there's not yet been a Black woman on that bench. So if we have the appointment of a woman, Black woman on the Supreme Court, that's representation. So she can have that voice on that most important bench to represent not only women that look like her, but her experiences, which are very different from the people on that bench. So unless and until we're at that place where her appointment is not newsworthy, we need to maintain and support and fund these affinity groups for the people who are left out because we're having very different conversations than the people who have never been denied access, which by the way, is going to be the theme of my next book is who has always had access to everything, whose door, who's never had a closed door and what's been the journey for the rest of us to get into those spaces, right? Oh my God. I bet, I'm going to imagine it's the tall white male. Well, but, but honestly, like when you look at all of the structures and the systems in this country, they were built by and for white straight men, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And there's never been a closed door no. to anyone in that category. And they will argue with me that, oh, I didn't get a job because of this. I'm like, but it wasn't because of those things in your, it's because you're an asshole. It's not because <laughs> you weren't like let into, oh you were God. having the conversations, right? So, and some of us never made the cut, Yeah. right? Yes. This is where I talk about the survivorship bias in the book too, which is if you look at the planes and you only look at the planes that come back, you're not going to understand why the planes that never made it back aren't even part of your data set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I loved that story in your book. I know. It really, really but it illustrates it perfectly. Right. Yeah. Yes. That was but, really great. And, and I, lo- I can't wait for your new book because I do know people who will, who are the group that never, that have always had doors open and they look and they're like, well, so does everybody else. Of course they do. Right. Like, oh my Meritocracy. God. Meritocracy. Right. Really Pull yourself that. up by your bootstraps. Right? You really think that, you know, and uh, um, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> anyway. Yeah, exactly. So about this book in the company of men, yeah. how women can succeed in a world built without them. What I loved about it is it's, oh, it's all about stories of women who have succeeded mm-hmm. in business. But not only that, the, these women turned around, looked back or sideways and said, you know what? There are other women, too, who want to succeed. Let me help them. We can learn from each other and I can show them what I did. And maybe they can, you know, add something new to that. And let's bring each other along. And I think that's the whole gist of what the Rising Tides is about. But I just loved that that theme. It's not just about the success of women, but it's about let's all be successful. Let's women helping women for God's sake, let's stop judging each other and help each other. They're doing it from the inside, right? So they're, they've like created a space in these male dominated spaces and they're using that point of privilege that they've earned 
to open it up. And that for me is the exact model that I want everyone to start adopting, right? Mm-hmm. I have recently been given a t-shirt by a friend and it said, empowered women, empower women. And that's what your book is all about, I think. And lift while rising, right? While you're elevating in your career or in your persona, whatever, don't, don't do it alone. I think that's what for me in my 20s, the women that were successful with very few exceptions, closed that door behind them, right? I have lots of experiences where there were women who really could have mentored me in a meaningful way and just chose not to because I, I think we were taught that there was scarcity, right? So right. if you're taught that there's scarcity for women in successful leadership positions in corporate America, you're not going to share that with anybody because you're going to feel like well, that's a threat to you. Yeah. So now they reach out to me and they're like, Hey, I love what you're doing. Can I help? And I'm like, yeah, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, read my book. Read yeah. my book. <laughs> ah, awesome. And share it with others. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will not tag them when you post this podcast. I promise I will not tag them on social media. But Why? You can. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, I know that I know they pay attention to what I'm doing now and I love it because it's like, you know what? There is something for you to learn here, right? And I don't I don't live in the world of like shaming people. I didn't name that clown who made the prostitution comment even though it would have been really easy to. Yeah. Because it it's not important. It's like this is what you don't do and let's be better. Let's do this better, right? I don't care. Actually, it's better that you didn't name them because there are several other guys out there thinking it was them, which is even better. Isn't that wild? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But credit to them for reading it and having the guts to reach out to me to apologize. Right. Like I I give them credit because I think that that story, if they saw themselves in it, they also saw the error. Right. And, and it was, and then I have to think if half a dozen of them reached out to me, how many of the other ones read it and thought, well, that wasn't me, but I did something similar. I may have been guilty of doing something similar in a different context. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Eileen, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. If you could go back and sit down with your 18 year old self. Wow. Who has getting just finished her semester and learned she was pregnant. What would you tell her? Oof, yeah, that's a big one. I would have told her to fight harder to get on birth control. And not that I regret anything. My daughter is the light and the purpose of my entire life. But it was hard, man. It was really hard. And it didn't have to be that hard. So I probably also would have said, push harder to, and Kara, don't take this personally, but push harder to go to a different high school that will actually challenge you because I coasted and then I got to university and I had no idea how to focus and structure my days. And right. I I just didn't, I I didn't have the discipline. So it's no surprise that I came home pregnant, but I would have probably survived it if I had gotten on reliable, reversible, accessible, affordable birth control. So, you know, a question about that. So I could not, I felt that I could not talk to my parents about birth control. And, you know, when I was sexually active and later on in like later in high school and into college and stuff. So, and I had gone to Planned Parenthood by myself and got birth control pills. Was that, were you saying that you didn't have, you couldn't find access to that? Maybe it wasn't a thought to you. I, I don't know. I just want like having access to, can you go into that a little bit more? So, uh, what I remember is being too scared to be seen at 
Planned Parenthood. I mean, my mother was a teacher in our school. Like there were moles everywhere, right? So I was terrified. And I also was terrified of my mother finding it in the house, right? Or whatever. And I could never have this conversation with my mother, right? I, I just couldn't. And I, I'm not faulting her. It just was not where she was at at all. She was of the abstinence generation. And I respected that. When I went to college, which thankfully was not a Catholic school, I went to the health center to try to get on birth control. And they're like, oh, we can get you in in about a month. And that's where things are flawed, right? So uh, every time I talk to young women, and I do a lot with university women, and I've done a few high school programs, and they always ask me, what's the one thing that would materially change things for women. And I say affordable, accessible, reliable, reversible birth control on demand. No questions asked to anybody, anybody. I don't care if you're 12. If you want birth control, you should get it right. Like there's no study that's going to tell me denying somebody birth control prevents them from having sex. Right. It doesn't, there's no correlation. Oh man. Right. Yes. And this is like a whole other podcast because oh yeah, there's so much, I mean, especially what's going on. We've talked a little bit about this uh, ahead of time, but what's going on with Roe versus Wade, it's breaking my heart. I mean, and, and, you know, and if just even access to Planned Parenthood, as as I said, just said that that was my go-to place. And it was a little, it was scary, but I'm like, I can't go to my family doctor. That's what I felt like, because I didn't want that to be so, somehow get to my parents. Well, there wasn't HIPAA when we were kids either. So oh, like- see, I don't even remember that. So yeah, I guess they probably could have just shared that information. So I felt like I had to go around that, but it was, it was scary. And in that time I had a, an irregular pap smear at one point and I had to go back for a colposcopy, which is where they, they actually take a piece of the cervix and it ended up being nothing, but I was freaking out. And I'm like, I might have to tell my parents now, my parents, if they're now, if they're going to listen to this, I don't think I've ever <laughs> shared that with them. And yeah. they'd probably be like a little horrified and just really, and sad that I didn't come to them, but yeah. you know, you're a teenager and you know, my parents were of the mindset of abstinence and yep. you know, it's just, it's just where I was at at the time. And if something happened and came up really it was clinically um, an issue, I certainly would have told them, but I was but it was, it was scary. And to, to think if I were pregnant and not wanting to keep the baby because just as scary, or if I was afraid that my parents would throw me out right? because of it, if they found out, I mean, I, not to have another option is, is horrifying. Well, and, and again, the, again, this is a whole other podcast and you can time out me if you want the idea that every abortion is an unwanted pregnancy is deeply flawed, right? So there are people who have pregnancies where there are severe life-ending problems with the fetus that don't result in a natural miscarriage that aren't detected until the child's, the fetus is a certain, what's the word I'm looking for, gestational stage, Mm. that the cruelty of not only putting this woman's health in danger, you know, sepsis and all those things that could happen, but to walk around visibly pregnant when you know the baby's not going to survive. And for anyone out there who's been pregnant, you get comments from so many well-meaning, lovely strangers that want to talk to you about when the baby's due, do you know what you're having? What? And to put a woman through that when there's no hope for this baby to survive is cruel. 
Mm. Absolutely cruel when she's already going through a situation where this baby is dearly wanted and loved and cannot survive this pregnancy, right? Let's give them the dignity to do what they and their doctors and their partners need to do. Mm. I mean, it's it's beyond my comprehension why we legislate this in, in these terrible, devastating circumstances for people, right? It's heartbreaking. It is. And we just need to change the narrative around who needs these services when and why and not legislate it, not, not get involved. There's no legislation telling me what kind of cancer treatment I can get if I get diagnosed with cancer. Right. Wow. Did we open it? I know. I know. Holy moly. (laughs) Bring it back. Bring it back. Ah! Uh, (laughs) Tell us about your next book, Eileen. What's, what's the title? It's awesome. We should have you back. We should have you back for a conversation about this because it's so it's, I just, I'm keeping my, I'm biting my tongue because there's so many things I want to say about it, but I know we would get into three hour conversation about it. It's just, well, and it becomes it becomes understanding what people's lived experiences are, right? And instead of, again, creating a false narrative that we think, you know, somebody in a third trimester abortion is somebody wildly irresponsible, that's really rarely the case, right? And we've got to change that narrative if we want to preserve the dignity of people going through this horrific, devastating experience. So the next book, I don't have a title yet. It's still very, very nascent, but I know that this is where it's going, where I'm going to talk about sort of set the stage on who created the society in which we now live and who decided at what point different people would have access to the things that we should all legally have access to. Right. And that can go from gender to race to level of ability, physical ability, mental ability, who gets access to things. Right. And, and I have a, it, it stems from, I have a, what's the word, an animation in my presentations where I have a male silhouette in blue that represents, it's the timeline from the book, but it's an an animation. It represents the decades that men had those positions and then how long it took for a woman to actually achieve parity and that she becomes the, the pink female silhouette, right? And I have, they run off the page because there are so many things from when this country was first founded and prior to that, you know, the president of an Ivy League university is the longest variance between a male achievement and a woman getting it in the 1980s, right? And we've had Ivy League universities since the 1600s here. So that's a a story that I think has never been told through that perspective of, okay, what did it take to open these doors? Who decided it was time to open these doors? What were those factors that led them to come to that, right? Because the idea that a white straight man has decided so many things about my life and my future is maddening to me, right? And then they think that it's up to them to decide who else gets the things that they've always had, right? Oversimplifying, but yeah, yeah 200 more pages like that, yeah. That's awesome. Can't wait to hear it and read it. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so one, for me, one last question. Eileen Scully, the author of In the Company of Men, How Women Can Succeed in a World Build Without Them. The picture on the front is a picture of a men's room 
and there are high heels sitting outside the door. Please tell me where you got that, the idea for that picture. I love that question. That's a great question, Kara. Yeah. And I, you know, when you're doing a book, you, you know, a few things that you need a great title that's going to catch people's attention and you need a great visual for the book cover. And in, I, I did a lot, a lot of research that hopefully is evident when you read this book, but one of the stories I came up on was uh, Ethel Wynant was the first female executive at CBS television in the 60s. And when they promoted her, they moved her office up to you know the mahogany executive row. And only when they did that did she discover that not only was there no women's room on that floor, but there was no lock on the door. So Ethel had to leave her high heels outside the door to let the men know that she was in there using the restroom. So when I talk about systems and structures built around men, this is architecture. This is literally something built thinking women would never need or have access to that space, right? And I just, fascinating. and so I was able to, she's passed on, unfortunately, but I was able to get in touch with one of her kids and told him I was using this for my book cover and sent him a copy of the book. He was thrilled. So, oh, that's Awesome. Hopefully Ethel's story will, will live on in a new generation through this. So that's awesome. I just love that. Absolutely. And the thought of her going into the men's room in stocking feet is so <laughs> disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> like when I see people on an airplane going into the restroom without their shoes on, I'm like, what are you doing? No, I bet Ethel brought slippers with her to work and she switched on the so. heels into the slippers and <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, that's what I'm going to tell myself at least. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, Patty, can you tell us how people can get in touch with Eileen and find the book? Eileen, thank you so much. Like, this is just amazing. I definitely want to have you back for a conversation around women's rights and legal issues around abortion and things that are going on right now. If you'd be so kind to come back and have that conversation with us, I think it'd be fascinating. People are going to want to get in touch with you. So I'm going to share with them how to do that. Your book, In the Company of Men, you can reach her there at inthecompanyofmenbook.com. Your website is The Rising Tides, that's plural, right? TheRisingTides.com. And you can be followed on Twitter at E-E-M Scully, that is S-C-U-L-L-Y. And on Instagram, it is at the Rising Tides Consulting. And LinkedIn is E-E-M Scully. It has been such a pleasure to have you with us. And you are a fierce force of great goodness for women. And thank you for all the work you've done to, to pave a way for us and all the women that you've touched in your life. You're a superhuman being. Thank you. Thank you both. This was great. A lot of fun. Great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, this was great, Eileen. We really appreciate you spending your some time with us and being brave to tell your story. It's It was great. Thank you both. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara and Patty. But I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say and let the words fall out. Honestly.
because we have a wicked Florida thunderstorm going on right now. So you're going to hear a lot of background noise. Mixed and edited by Desmond McNeese for We Mixed It, LLC. Go to whatsoundsawesome.com. And cut.